Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So I'm actually, I want to spend our time this week discussing Afghanistan. And that's going to consume the whole of the show this week. It's pretty much been what's dominated the news. There have been other things that have been going on. But I want to I want to talk about what's been going on there for the past 20 years and, and how we got to where we are today. Look, there were a lot of problems with, which, with the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And here's just six of them. One, U.S. leaders ignored intelligence that stated such a quick withdrawal would be a disaster. Biden was warned, and he ignored that. Number two, the removal of the military was, if it was planned at all, it was ineptly planned, abandoning an estimated 15,000 Americans. Number three, we abandoned bases that were easily taken over by the Taliban and are we are now having to build new bases to evacuate Americans. Number four, the Afghan army was trained to fight with all of our resources in the way that we fight. Yet, in the wake of Biden's withdrawal decision, we removed those resources, therefore crippling them because then they didn't have the tools that we had trained them to use. Five, the Taliban has now seized some $83 billion, probably more than that, probably vastly more than that, actually, of military equipment that was meant for the Afghan army. And six, we abandoned thousands of Afghan allies. So those are just six really quick issues that are problems that flowed out of this withdrawal from Afghanistan. But beyond the immediate problems with the withdrawal, there's a root issue that I want to get to with why Afghanistan and what we were doing there was destined to be a failure from the start. If, if your definition of success in Afghanistan was helping the Afghani people establish some sort of democracy, as George W. Bush claimed, although, and this is just a total side note, democracy is a failed form of government as well, which is why we are a constitutional republic. But that's a conversation for another day. A lot of people throw around that term, you know, democracy, democracy, democracy. George W. Bush did um, back in the day. But Democracy is not what we have here in the United States. There's a reason we don't have it here in the United States. It's a failed form of government. So that's why we have a constitutional republic. But like I said, that's the conversation for another day. But this is why when Tucker Carlson said this week in his in his show responding to all this, he said that Biden did the necessary thing in the ugliest possible way. Tucker was right when he said that we needed to get out of Afghanistan. But this was the wrong way to go about it. But I want to kind of get to the root of the problem here with Afghanistan and and what was going on there with the United States. Let's start by discussing a 140-page report from Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, Saigar, uh, John Sopko. So according to Sopko's 140-page report, Washington has frittered away about $145 billion on rebuilding Afghanistan, plus another $837 billion on military action there. And this is a direct quote right out of his report. He said, the extraordinary costs were meant to serve a purpose, though the definition of that purpose evolved over time. At various points, the U.S. government hoped to eliminate al-Qaeda, decimate 
the Taliban movement that hosted it, deny all terrorist groups a safe haven in Afghanistan, build Afghan security forces so they could deny terrorists a safe haven in the future, and help the civilian government become legitimate and capable enough to win the trust of Afghans. Each goal, once accomplished, was thought to move the U.S. government one step closer to being able to depart. While there have been several areas of improvement, most notably in the areas of health care, maternal health, and education, progress has been elusive, and the prospects for sustaining this progress are dubious. Now, he's been auditing, uh, Sopko has been auditing this tragedy for about 13 years, during which time he says, quote, the cumulative list of systemic challenges Saigar and other oversight bodies have identified is staggering. He said that money has disappeared or been spent on projects that were never completed. Those that were finished frequently could not be sustained by Afghanistan's weak, widely despised central government. He said a lot of cash was lost to corruption and some of it fell into the hands of America's enemies. And then he said among the lessons learned in Sopko's new report is that, quote, the U.S. government continuously struggled to develop and implement a coherent strategy for what it hoped to achieve in Afghanistan. You know, all growing up, I've always heard the phrase, you know, if you if you aim at nothing, that's exactly what you'll get. Nothing. And that really sums up, I think, what happened with the agenda, the strategy, to use the word that Sopko used here in Afghanistan. He, he moreover, as with most government efforts, instead of recognizing failure and throwing in the towel, uh, Sopko went on to say that U.S. officials believe the solution to insecurity was pouring ever more resources into Afghan institutions, a pattern that left the Afghan government dependent and vulnerable. And I think I'm going to bring this up again later. That is a pattern of behavior that we recognize very well here in the United States, where when our answer to our problems is just to throw money at it, that's what the government thinks, education, health care, all of these things, they're just, you know, it's it's a problem. And so their answer is just throw more money at the public education system, where we easily here, just in the state of South Carolina, our biggest budget item is education. And we still, you know, year after year, We have this huge budget and we're not able to accomplish what we have set out to accomplish in educating our young people. And it doesn't matter how much money we throw at it. Same thing for the healthcare system here in the United States. Same thing for Afghanistan. He went on to say that the U.S. government consistently underestimated the amount of time required to rebuild Afghanistan and created unrealistic timelines and expectations that prioritize spending quickly. Decisions were made for political reasons, and money was spent to achieve short-term goals leading to corruption. Sopko also found that reconstruction projects were rarely sustainable. While every project was touted as another step along the road to Afghan independence, in reality, he said, quote, U.S. agencies were seldom judged by their projects' continued utility, but by the number of projects completed and dollars spent, end quote. Eventually, the marker for success in Afghanistan became not how well we were equipping the local people and government in establishing, quote, democracy, as Bush originally claimed, but in how much money we spent. Launched in an environment lacking good personnel, security, and an understanding of Afghan culture, according to Sopko, the projects were doomed from the start. So, 
what do I mean by uh, understanding of Afghan culture? Well, in The Tail Wags the Dog, International Politics in the Middle East, it's a book written by Ephraim Karsh. He shows that the conventional account misunderstands the Middle East fundamentally, thereby kind of dooming the quest for successful policies. Karsh's central insight is rather contrarian. He says that the region's people and leaders aren't uh, are, are agents shaping their own history. To formulate sensible foreign policy, we must take seriously their pre- prevailing moral political ideas. Above all, the embrace of Islam. So he went on to say, in his book that in the 21st century, neither the Bush nor Obama administrations adequately recognized the Middle East animating ideas and tribal norms. Bush imagined America could transform the region through, quote, more democracy, ignoring endemic sectarian tribal conflicts and jihadist ambitions. And then Obama treated Islamist holy warriors as if they're animated by socioeconomic and political grievances, blind, as Karsh puts it, to their millenarian, religiously-based political legacy. So Karsh argues that we must pay much closer attention to the Middle East's distinctive ideas, particularly its tribal culture and Islam's dominance. One implication is that the region's people and intellectual leaders bear the primary responsibility for their problems and for solving them. This is, a, this is a direct quote from his book. Karsh wrote in his book, Only when the region is a place where religion does not trump all socio-political loyalties, where citizenship is not synonymous with submission, where political, ethnic, and religious differences are not settled by internecine strife and murder, and where individuals and societies take responsibility for their actions rather than blame others for their misfortunes, will its inhabitants at last be able to look forward to a real spring. Karsh here is hitting on the problem, the dominance of Islam, specifically jihadists within Islam, but not the solution. You see, Islam is counterculture to self-governance and personal liberty. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more. Because these ideas that our constitutional republic are built upon are found within the concept of God-given rights from a Judeo-Christian worldview. So all of this comes down to worldview. Steve Dace over at The Blaze wrote these words, and he said, quote, We thought our way of life was a plug-and-play system. We had abandoned things like God-given rights, which means we first have to acknowledge who actually God is, that were our cornerstones, and we replaced them with democracy as mere process. A process that we could just export, fill in the blanks with native tongue, and the natives would then take it from there. The Judeo-Christian theologies have long wrestled with the extensive free will. Meanwhile, Islam is unsure of whether free will exists at all. So how were we going to give freedom to a culture that is unsure it has any free will? Therefore, we blindly continued on with what George W. Bush said at his second inauguration. The call of freedom comes to every mind and every soul. Except, Steve Dace continues, if that were true, how do we explain the last 7,000 years of recorded human history that is simply an ebb and flow of empires and different strands of humanity attempting to impose their will on others? If that were true, why is this still-fledgling country that hasn't even reached its 300th birthday the longest successful attempt at human freedom this fallen world has ever seen? End quote. It's all about 
worldview. The United States of America is a constitutional republic that was formulated upon biblical principles. And here's, here's just one example. General theological or doctrinal propositions regarding human nature, civil authority, political society, and the like, informed conceptions and institutions of law and civil government. A biblical understanding of original sin and humankind's radical depravity, coming out of Genesis 3, inspired the framers to design a constitutional system that would guard against the concentration or abuse of government powers vested in fallen human actors. The most basic fundamental features of the American constitutional design, limited government, separation of powers, and checks and balances, are best understood in the light of this theological doctrine of human depravity and the attendant necessity to check, in the words of Federalist 37, the infirmities and depravities of the human character, end quote. You see, the, the great experiment, the United States and our, our Constitution, it's about limiting the government, not the people. And that was radical, and it still is radical. And that concept comes from this limited government, separation of powers, checks and balances, because of our understanding of theological doctrine and human depravity. So you cannot plug and play the U.S. form of government as it was originally designed into a culture that's own worldview is the antithesis of the Judeo-Christian worldview. The two are totally incompatible. And, and I don't say this of my own volition either. I don't say that Islam is incompatible with the Judeo-Christian worldview on my own. Here are the words from Ayan Hirsi Ali of Harvard University. She says, I was raised a practicing Muslim and remained one for almost half my life. I attended madrasas, that is, Islamic schools, and memorized large parts of the Quran. As a child, I lived in Mecca for a time and frequently visited the Grand Mosque. As a teenager, I sympathized with the Muslim Brotherhood. She went on to run away from home because her father arranged a marriage for her. She went to Holland, studied there, uh, now lives in the United States. But then she says, in short, I've seen Islam from the inside and the outside. She goes on to say that, I believe that it's foolish to insist, as Western leaders habitually do, that the violent acts committed in the name of Islam can somehow be divorced from the religion itself. For more than a decade, my message has been simple. Islam is not a religion of peace. And she says that when she asserts that, I do not mean that Islamic belief makes all Muslims violent. This is manifestly not the case. There are millions of peaceful Muslims in the world. What I do say is that the call to violence and the justification for it are explicitly stated in the sacred texts of Islam. Moreover, this theologically sanctioned violence is there to be activated by any number of offenses, including but not limited to adultery, blasphemy, homosexuality, and apostasy, that is, to leave Islam. End quote. So this was a woman who was raised a practicing Muslim, was sympathized with the Muslim Brotherhood, is she is not a believer uh, at this time that I know of. She's written a couple of books that have been fascinating. I think one of them is titled Nomad. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly off the top of my head, but this is somebody who's intimately familiar with Islam, who's saying these countries that's religion is Islam. That religion is not a peaceful religion. And that 
makes it the antithesis of Christianity and the antithesis of what our constitutional republic was built upon. And so you cannot build a government that looks like the United States of America upon a foundation that is totally different from what our foundation was. We literally put the cart before the horse in the case of Afghanistan. Spiritual revival must take place in that land before a political realignment can be successful. But let it, let's not lose hope for Afghanistan, though. God, he, he is moving in that place. And because it's the second fastest growing church in the world, Afghanistan could be headed towards such a heart change and worldview shift that establishing freedom for the Afghani people could become a reality. Rather than sending the military in to Afghanistan to establish physical freedom, we should be praying first for spiritual freedom to sweep over Afghanistan. Only then can true liberty be established there. So let's endeavor together to be praying for a few specific things for Afghanistan. Primarily the believers that are there uh, that are facing an unprecedented wave of persecution because out of out of them the church will continue and can continue to grow i ran across these five points from a pastor and i thought and thought i would share them with y'all as i appreciated his specificity so the first thing is to pray for boldness Repeat the prayer of the early church in Acts 4.29 that says, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Second, pray for protection. There's many missionaries, pastors, leaders that are trapped with the airports or because the airports are closed, the borders are shut, there's no way out. Heaven authorized two jailbreaks in the book of Acts. Let's pray for heavenly and angelic interventions to happen today and in the coming days. Third, pray for unity. Pray that the church in America and the world would be united in prayer and support for the believers in Afghanistan. This is not a partisan political issue. This is a kingdom issue. Number four, pray for revival. Pray that the underground church would continue to grow and expand in these days. Pray for a fresh wave of revival to spread like wildfire across the Middle East. Pray for Saul to Paul encounters for the Taliban. Because this is where, if we really wanted, if the goal in Afghanistan, this, our, our definition of success in Afghanistan was to establish some sort of government that looked like the United States of America, where men and women and children could live free, would have personal responsibility, limited government, there has to be, there has to be some sort of embrace of biblical principles because so much of our government stems from our from a biblical understanding a biblical worldview and so revival is a must and lastly pray that god would be glorified he's the ruler of heaven and earth he's the king of kings and the lord of lords now power or evil on earth can match his might and pray that he would be glorified while the world watches. Amen and amen. Hope you have a wonderful weekend.
Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com. 